Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Sarah, I am so stoked. This is the inaugural Sarah Lane Ritchie regular guest appearance episode, which we will be doing going forward. I think normally we will have maybe two smaller topics to talk about. Today, we're just doing the one big one because this is something I've been waiting to talk about for six months since Soren was born. And I've been waiting on you to not (laughs) only have Rowan, but then have enough time to get your brain back to talk yeah. about the experience. So I've been patient and the Lord has rewarded me with uh, this nice block to now talk with you. So people should look forward to that. You've of course been on the show before we, you were on a group panel about coronavirus and the problem of evil. And we did our episode about a year ago on psychedelics and spiritual technologies. Is that it? Or was there a third? No, there was also a third. We talked about, was it something with privilege? Did you do white privilege? Oh, yeah. Or that something might have around been, that? Yeah. I think it was a patron-exclusive episode. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So if you're not a patron and you're like, oh, this Sarah Lane Ritchie gal is really something, <laughs> there's a reason to become one. You can go listen to that. <laughs> anyway, okay. So this is actually going to be a pretty joyous, really quite a joyous topic and conversation with a bunch of, I think, f- kind of fascinating theological angles that are mostly constructive, positive. But to set it up, we got to start with the negative because this story of infertility 
and IVF and all that stuff is a part of both of our stories. Mm -hmm. And really, you need to know that to understand where we are coming from with this sort of boundless (laughs) enthusiasm uh, that has come as a result of that working, right? So let's start with infertility. Um, I want to say a couple things about infertility before I'll ask you to tell your story. First of all, this is something that I now know through experience, and I'm sure you do too, it's very difficult to find the right balance of joy and sensitivity because people find themselves at all points on this story, right? So many people listening today are still having infertility issues. Mm -hmm. And so they are not in our stage of like being stoked with their newborn. Mm -hmm. And I was in that stage for four years, Mm -hmm. uh, three or four years. So I know that well, it is very hard to not constantly post photos of my son on Instagram, even though I know that. So that, that's the, that's just the thing I want to say kind of before, like, if you're still in the spot of this part of the conversation, uh, please do not take the rest of our conversation as trying to in, as invalidating that or saying that wasn't important or, you know, yeah. and, and of course not saying, well, God's will is that everybody will get past their infertility because we know right. you right. and I both know that does not happen for everybody. Yeah. So just have to say that up front. But let's let's get your your well, also Martin's, I would add yeah. I would add as well, um, in addition to people who are currently struggling with infertility, there's a whole population of people who for whatever reason do not wish to have children and who right. will not appreciate any sort of theological discussion that seems to link theological revelations of God's love or presence, for example, with having children, right? And so I think it's important to recognize that there are people who will find perhaps this conversation challenging or a very sensitive conversation uh, for or various worthless. reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Or worth or worthless. Right. Yeah. Um, so I'm very sensitive to all these different groups of people. I think that's good. You're a theologian and you need to be especially sensitive to like people who don't plan or want to have children. I will say right now. If that's you, you might not want to listen to me talk on this all that much. I am at a point – of course, I don't judge anybody. I don't think anybody is morally deficient for not having kids. But I am firmly, as a person, firmly now in the camp of, oh, this has added a dimension to human experience that just wasn't there. And I don't mean that in a gushy kind of a way. Like everything's changed. It's true. Everything does change. Some aspect of everything changes. That's true. But I'm more just saying like, personally, I would never go back and not do this. Mm -hmm. It would feel to me like an incomplete human experience. That's just my cards on the table. Not everybody that's had kids would probably agree with me, but I suspect most would. And uh, anyway, that's where I'm coming from. So if that, if you don't (laughs) want to hear that, just skip to next week's episode. I don't know. You know, whatever. That's yeah. fine. I, I won't be offended if you're not offended. Right. Okay. What is your guys' story, your husband, Martin, and you with yeah. infertility? Can you give us the, the Cliff's Notes? Yeah. I mean, it's really complicated. And I should also say as well that, I mean, I'm really grateful to be on the podcast uh, with you, Dan, talking about this issue in particular, because I think this is one of the first conversations that we probably had when we met. Oh, you're right. Because you guys were newly pregnant, I believe. And I was going through IVF. 
That's and right. so we met uh, when this issue, this top, this topic was extremely high on yeah. our list of priorities of for mind, both of yeah. us. Yep. Yeah. I mean, this is a very long and complex and emotional story for anybody who goes through it. So I'll try and give just like the short version of it, and we can unpack it wherever you would like. So my husband Martin is he's Scottish, and I'm American. We met we met in Edinburgh in Scotland, and. I, for various reasons, knew that I would probably have trouble conceiving right from the beginning. So I kind of anticipated that it might be difficult for us to have children. And so when we got married, we started trying right away. Martin, my husband, is much older than me. So he is 48. So we were very conscious not only of our respective ages, but also about sort of the quality of life and the sort of family that we wanted to have and the sort of environment that we wanted to have our children growing up in, you know, so we were pretty eager to kind of get the show on the road as quickly as possible. But I know I knew it's it taboo be, to ask yeah. uh, women their age, but it matters yeah. here. You're 36, 35? I'm 34. 34, um, okay. I'll be 35. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Uh, well, but 30s, be- <laughs> past that 30 yeah. threshold, yeah. the math starts to change fairly quickly, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, so we got married when I was just when I just turned 30. Okay, um, so you started you started trying four years ago, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, we started right away. Yeah. I like to joke that I basically got a PhD in infertility and baby making. <laughs> um, and I definitely feel like I have some kind of advanced degree. Yeah, I'm sure Jaffrey yeah, feels the same. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Just like, you know, digging into research uh, articles. So uh, much. So yep. many. So much. So much. Right. So um, we started seeking out help, uh, medical help for infertility about six months after we got married, which is a bit sooner than most, but we kind of had some indication of the reasons that we wouldn't be able to conceive easily, mostly to do with my kind of like hormonal levels and things historically. So we started seeking help and getting testing done and everything. And after a few months, basically like at the one year mark, the doctors here started us on the IVF protocol. And I need to say here that we are in the UK. So basically all of our infertility care is taken care of. It's, it's, it's free at the point of care is what they say. So it's, it's free for us. You pay taxes, but like it's free when we were going through the process within Scotland. And the different parts of the UK have different provisions for infertility treatment. And so Scotland is like the best in the UK. And so what that means is that we were eligible for up to three rounds of IVF for free. And each round was covered. Within each round, we can essentially use all of the eggs, all of the embryos that had been preserved. So that is insane. That's like in Seattle, that's something like a 50 to $60,000 value. Yeah, yeah, it's um, um, it was it was really it's very generous. So just to speed things up, yeah, we we started going down down the infertility route. There is a very long waiting list here for for these treatments, and so it took there's a long the time. <laughs> yeah, there's the catch with socialized medicine. Right, exactly, Love socialized yeah. medicine, but yeah. there are some really serious, really serious waiting lists. And so we started down the process. And another difficult part of doing IVF for us was that it was very depersonalized. This is another part of socialized medicine that we could get into, but it doesn't feel very warm. Uh, you see a different practitioner every time you're there, you just are sort of like wheeled in, wheeled out. You're, you know, you're, you're doing tons of injections. I don't, if, if for people who aren't aware of the IVF process, it's extremely invasive. You're taking hormones. Right. You basically um, sacrifice your body to the system for months at a time. Yeah. It's this invisible process that people don't know about unless you tell them, but it's extremely invasive. Your emotions are all over the place. Just physically, your emotions are all over the place. In addition to the stress and anxiety and fears and hopes about whether or not the process will actually be successful. So, so we so we went through a first round of IVF. 
they put us through like the standard process and it was not very successful. So they only were able to retrieve a relatively low number of eggs from me. And this is after they had like stimulated me. So I was supposed to get like a ton of eggs. They weren't able to get very many eggs out of that. Like only one egg basically survived to the point of my embryo transfer. That's really considered a very bad round of IVF if you only have one that survives, one one embryo that survives everything. So they implanted that embryo, they transferred that embryo into me and I did have some positive pregnancy tests. And so I was pregnant, but the numbers weren't great and I miscarried very early. That was devastating. I mean, I was very prepared for it, but it was it was very crushing. It was all, I think it was even more crushing than the miscarriage itself was the realization that they had struggled to retrieve many eggs and that the embryos were not that great. And so it, I was just, I thought I would do better. You know, I thought that my body would be able to do what it needed to do and then let science take over. I was really surprised that my body just wasn't going to play ball. So that was really hard. And so we got back on the wagon and we started as soon as we could down another round of IVF. And they put us on some different protocols this time and uh, did some things differently. And it was much more successful. It was much more successful. And so we um, were able to get a bunch of good embryos, five that were really quite good. Um, We had our kind of like perfect embryo that that ended up being implanted, transferred to me. And then we have four that are now currently frozen yeah. <laughs> a few miles down the road for me. And actually that would be a really interesting conversation. Like what are we going to do with these frozen embryos? Um, yeah. I think about it all the time now that I have a, an actual little baby in front of me, the specificity of my baby now of Rowan, Rowan is her name. The specificity of Rowan as a little human is like shocking to me every day. And I can't believe that I have four embryos who are yeah. genetic humans frozen and all their little genetic specificity. And so I need to figure out that dilemma, but I have a lot of thoughts about it. Anyway, so yeah, yeah. so we did two rounds of IVF. One failed in a miscarriage and one was successful, but it was a very difficult four-year process. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing all that, Sarah. I'm probably going to, I'm going to go shorter on our story and just say, if you want me to, we can pressure Jaffrey to come on and and tell our whole story in more length, but I'm eager to get to sort of these top level questions we have today. Um, so I'm going to do a, a shortened version. I have waited to talk about this and to particularly name IVF because I wanted to have enough time to at least explain our sort of ethical thinking and all that, because especially myself, I'm not sure about Jaff. She doesn't seem to disagree with me, but I have some strong feelings around it as a pro-life leaning liberal person. And, you know, we'll, we'll get into that here in a second, but let's just start at the beginning. We did not unlike you guys, anticipate having trouble conceiving. So we just hung out, married. We got married at 26, and we were both 26, and we just hung out for basically six or seven years and kind of waited to try. And then we started to sort of try in, in fits and starts. And then, you know, by four years ago, we were really we were really trying. And the first thing that Jaffrey had was a, what's it called? An ectopic pregnancy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that happened and then that led to sort of like more intensive work with just her OBGYN. So her surgeon became her doctor, her main doctor. And then we had three early miscarriages in a row after that. I think that those ended around the six to nine week mark. All three of those did. At which point we started trying fertility stuff and we we waited on IVF. I'm a little fuzzy on it because – just like moms forget the pain of childbirth, 
Yeah. I have like forgotten a lot of the details of the infertility period, frankly. I'll never forget the pain of childbirth. Well, okay. I'm pretty clear on that one. <laughs> <laughs> but that is a documented phenomenon. They're like, oh, it I wasn't know. so bad. Well, let me tell you, it was pretty bad. Yeah. Anyway, we, we're going through this process. We, we also try whatever. They, they do tests and do all, run all the blood tests. So we get to the point where it's like we either need to do IVF or accept that we're going to have a, quite a low chance and look at adoption or fostering. If we want to have kids. And at that point, I laid a pretty heavy trip on us of like an ethical shooting. I say I I was shooting all over uh, ourselves. And I thought, well, we are the kind of people, people who have this type of situation ought to adopt. And so that's what we'll do or foster or whatever. Mm -hmm. And we had a couple good conversations with friends and one in particular with our friend Sarah, who was like, I just want to make sure you guys are like. Paying attention to like, that's great. I understand your moral reasoning and all, but like, is that really true? And is that really what you want? You know, you could be wrong about that moral reasoning. After which I had some pretty intensive sort of prayer and journaling experiences Mm -hmm. where I felt like I was able to admit fully, I want a scientist to help us have a baby if I can. That is actually what I want. And I'm open to fostering an adoption down the road, but mm-hmm. we sort of have, because, you know, the clock is ticking biologically, we sort of got a shot at this and we have to take it or not. And so I talked to Jaffrey, she felt the same and we decided to do IVF and it worked and Soren stuck and he is just bar none, the best thing in my life, Yeah, maybe to ever come into my life. Yeah. And I say that all the time. In Jaffrey's presence, and I apologize to her. Yeah. So that's kind of our – that's the background of our story. Do, do you think I need to No, I really – maybe expand – no, no. I love it. Um, and I, what I think is really interesting, and maybe we could talk about a little bit more, is the way that you went about the ethical decision-making. Uh, because it sounds like you sat back and sort of did like a very almost clinical, like rational, like moral yes. evaluation of the thing. And there were certain factors that made it into your calculations and certain factors that did not. So for me, one yeah. of the factors that were actually very high on my list was that there was something about the physical organic connection between me and this other life that had actual value that it, it was a, it was a net good in the world. If that happened. Yeah. I'm laughing. Like, of course I agree with you now. Like yeah. <laughs> that is, and I think that people, I mean, my take would be people who adopt would be best off acknowledging that that's there and that they're not yeah. pursuing that. That's great. Yeah. And if you, and if God calls you to do that and you do it, it's heroic work. So, mm-hmm. but like, yeah, you are actually not getting that. And that is a value. You, you could imagine a world, it's at least logically possible, where every new offspring just gets some random mix of like all the genes from the thousand past humans in their line. Like mm-hmm. that's that's a plausible world as mm-hmm. opposed to just from these two people, the mm-hmm. parents. And mm-hmm. that's not the way the world works. It works just the parents. And there is a value in that. That's one way of phrasing one of these things that I realized is I did want that. I wanted to at least try for that with at least one kid. Mm -hmm. I wanted to experience that. Uh, But I wasn't – I was not thinking about that at the beginning. I was being purely disembodied in like the – in the thickest sense of that term. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think for me, I was always aware that, you know, it was definitely a possibility to like adopt a child or to foster or to find other areas in my life that I could, where I could like have meaningful connection with somebody who 
would form a very intimate bond with me. You know, I knew that there were ways to get other aspects of this, of this relationship in, in the world. But I was actually really seeking, I was very clear that I was actually really seeking not only connection with another little person, but also the rest of humanity. Like there was something about being genetically plugged into this web of humanity. It's almost like I was like, I knew I was very aware of being at the end of the, like the family tree or whatever. And it's like, I wasn't like just wanting to like add to something. It was more that I wanted to participate fully in this web. And I felt a little bit disconnected from it. This is more about my own history than about anything else. I think it's very, like, it's very specific to me, actually, that I felt kind of like disconnected from the rest of humanity. If we're going to talk about it in Enneagram terms, it's because I'm a four. Like, I'm like such a four, right? Like, it's like, I was like, I long for connection, but I often don't feel it. I often feel disconnected from not only my immediate uh, circles, but the rest of humanity and God as well. And so there was, I, I admit that I was seeking transcendence and having a baby. I'm very aware of it. I was seeking connection with the rest of humanity, also seeking a connection with God that was very earthy and organic and embodied. Yeah. And to be honest, like having gone through IVF, like I was really disappointed that I had to do IVF. I did not want to do IVF because it felt so forced. It yeah, felt- I think we felt that the, way too. Yeah. Yeah. That felt, it felt the opposite of natural and organic. And I have friends who <laughs> yes. are, I have, I, well, it is. Uh, it especially is, it is. being on the guy's end and what, yeah. what you're Nothing supposed to do it. in the room. Oh, can I just really quick? This is just like one of the funniest artifacts of having grown up evangelical is that there was definitely a part of me growing up in purity culture that looked forward to the day where it was my job to guilt free watch porn and you know jizz into a cup and that it would be totally okay, like morally okay. And man, let me tell you, that was one of the biggest single letdowns of my life. It is not it like, of course, that was a silly thing to think would be great. But in my teenage uh, evangelical guilty brain. But man, it ranks up there among the greatest letdowns. Anyway, okay. moving on. That was just one of the right. funniest uh, disappointments of yeah. my life. No, there is. Well, the, I mean, you're getting. I mean, this. Okay, yes, this is a very artificial process. Everything about so it, you, you laugh. Yeah. You have to laugh at it because it's just you find yourself doing things that are so crazy. You're like, what am I? What am I doing right now? What is happening to us? And- well, but what's so interesting is now having Soren and seeing that he is mm-hmm. totally us, yeah. right? Like he is exactly half right. of our DNA each. It's like you do recognize like there's a part of you that wants to think or maybe it's movies or I don't know what it is. Like, oh, if we're really making passionate love and that's when we conceive and like this is a baby born of love in the momentary kind of a sense. Right. Yeah. Uh, Actually, no, that like it's just the gamete Mm -hmm. and the you know, it's just the DNA. Like you can do it in a super impersonal way. And like he's the same. Yeah. You know, right. So that yeah. was kind of that's been kind of interesting to think about. So, OK, I agree with that 80 percent. But there is this 20 percent of me that wishes the story had been different because like the process mattered to me from the beginning. Mm. And the classic narrative that you get around IVF is that like, yeah, it sucks going through it. But as soon as they put that baby in your arms, it doesn't matter anymore. And who cares how you made the baby and made the baby? I think there is a part of me that will always grieve that it had to be so forced. And I know that I'm not supposed to say that. Like, I know that I am I, adopting the wrong narrative here. Oh, but because, because, like, I so wanted it to be sort of like an inevitable result of 
lovemaking or a story and yeah. that like it, that was just completely organic from beginning to end and in which you weren't like manufacturing a human in a lab somewhere that you that there was something about the timing so I, like I even go like deep down the rabbit hole and like think well what if her genetic material would have been different if it had been not like right. chosen chosen or like if the if the process had been slightly different because we we're going through a slightly different process because like they use slightly different hormones or different chemicals you know like who knows how she would have been different if we hadn't mm. had the particular interventions that we did if the if the medications had been slightly different if it had been if the quantum mechanical level of that egg and that sperm had been functioning in a slightly different environment who knows what kind of kid i would have gotten right. and there are so many there are so many x factors that and it's like it's not a big deal to me but one thing i think about often is i have rowan who is an incredibly specific human she is herself she is nobody else she is herself but like i even think about like what if that embryologist had been having a slightly better day or what if she'd had like one fewer one one fewer cup of coffee that morning. Would she have graded one of the other embryos slightly different? And so I would have gotten one of the other embryos because it was rated as being a little bit higher or lower than Rowan's embryo. Like there are so many counterfactuals that would have resulted in a different human that I am just so aware that this story is so contingent for me on a, a tons of other factors I wouldn't have chosen if I could go right. back in time and redo it. So yeah. that's really interesting. And I've thought about this too. But, you know, just like how in social science studies, they'll do regression analysis to figure out how much of a difference can be explained by which variable, mm -hmm. right? So they can say something like, ah, gender explains 40% of the variance here or whatever. Mm -hmm. I would guess, and from the reading that I've done when, when I got my own little master's in infertility, most of the variance is like which sperm gets in there mm -hmm. and which egg the sperm mm -hmm. hits. So you're mm -hmm. born... You and Jaffrey were born with 400,000 eggs. Mm -hmm. Okay, that dwindles down to the thousands by the time you're childbearing years. That's random. And then the sperm is like a million sperm that go in there, and they all have a slightly different version of, of mine or Martin's, you know, genetic makeup, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's like 80, 90% of the variance right there. And that yeah. because in the long-term IVF studies, they just don't find much difference. Mm -hmm. So- mm -hmm maybe 10% of the variance mm -hmm. could be that, but isn't most of it just sperm egg combo? Yeah. And I think yeah. about that all the time because now like I think about Soren. So let's get theological with this. I think about Soren's particularity. I think about my own particularity, like so much of my conscious experience in the world, which includes my conscious experience of God when I have it is contingent on the one out of a million sperm and the one out of a thousand eggs in my mom that yeah. made me. And yeah. so like contingency is a word that keeps coming up for me as yes. I yes. theologically think about this uh -huh. process. Yes, exactly. I feel the exact same way. I think you're right. You think you're right about that, about the 80, 90% of this just being taken care of by getting like one sperm and one egg together. The part that is still left over, and this actually affects the way I will make decisions in the future, is that an embryologist was involved in which embryo was chosen, right? And actually, I, what I didn't say is that our second round of IVF was actually ICSI, where they actually insert a sperm into an egg oh, manually. Okay. Yeah. So I, so it's basically for people who've like failed of the first round of IVF, they'll yeah. do ICSI, which is where they take, they just suck up, they chew the sperm and they um, insert it through like the shell of the egg. Yeah. They get it in there and they make sure it's like really in there. Yeah. Um, and so they just don't leave that much to, to chance. But if right. you, if for instance, you end up having 
all the kids and let's let's say you ha- one of them doesn't take three of them mm-hmm. do and you have four kids mm-hmm. then a lot of that last 10 20% will yeah. be gone Exactly. Exactly. Because so then I would feel much better about this. I think so. I'll probably so, end up doing well, that's, four so that's more so rounds. interesting. Yeah. That's one of the reasons was us like we will have every embryo. We will yeah, put everyone yeah. in. So we knew that. And man, I I feel you. That's a heavy trip to think. Well, if I'm not going to put in some of you know that is that's yeah. okay. That's a crazy deep question. That yeah, yeah. we're is not on the table for us. Um, you know, what's really terrible too, is I know that I could very easily donate these embryos and like let somebody else, you know, basically donate them to somebody who doesn't have good eggs or sperm involved right. and like they just need a donor embryo. This is terrible. But like, I am really selfish when it comes to this. Like if these little embryos are going to be people, I want them to be my people. Like I don't want them to go like, so I'm but like, would I'm gonna, you, like, before, before destroying them, would you adopt yeah. them out? Yes, I wouldn't. I mean, well, there is a question about research. Like if there was like a, because we can do this like cost benefit analysis with like research. So like if future women will be able to, future families will be able to have children because of research and this research can only be done with existing embryos. And so it's like I could participate in the long-term existence of more babies. Does that outweigh cost? The sort of like, whatever that cost is, I think it's really difficult to put a number on that cost. But does it outweigh the cost of letting one of those embryos not develop, essentially. Yeah, that's so interesting. Before we move on from IVF, have you read, because I have actually kind of avoided it, Mm -hmm. uh, which I don't know what that says about me. Have you read any of these articles that, you know, Christian ethicists will write from time to time arguing against IVF? Like recently, Matthew Lee Anderson, who was a guest actually on Depolarize, my old podcast, and who who I like, but we, we have a lot of disagreements. He wrote a piece for Gospel Coalition about the dangers or sort of like the spiritual danger of IVF. And I just couldn't really, I just was like, I imagined Soren's face and I said, I'm not going to read this Yeah, (laughs) because in some sense, I don't give a shit what you're, and I already know that I disagree with him on a bunch of like natural law kind of, Mm. you know, pseudo Catholic ethical stuff. So I already knew that I probably, I should, I, and I probably will read it because I'm curious, but have you read that stuff and do you have kind of thoughts Mm -hmm. around that? Right. No. And it's mostly because when people sit back and do armchair, like moral, ethical reasoning, I think that they're not taking into account all the factors that need to be taken into account. And I think that this is particularly true of like Thomistic Aristotelian kind of thought when it's like sort of like the form, the purpose of this thing is to do this thing. So yeah, I'm not on board with the Thomistic lineup on this particular question. I just don't think they're taking into account all the data. So it's like, I can say, you know, I don't care how great your argument is. It's not going to account for all the data in the way that I process that data and our evaluation of what goods are, are going to be different. Um, Yeah. I would think of it like there's almost no line of purely speculative, theological, philosophical reasoning Mm -hmm. that I would be confident enough in that would overturn my direct prayer and discernment experience. And then especially my experience of Soren in the wild once he's out. There's just like... I would just question my philosophical assumptions before I would question that. Uh, But hey, people, different theological strokes. So let's get into some of these more explicitly kind of theological consequences. So I have a line and you have a line. So I sent you a little kind of like six bullet point thing and you sent me back like a six bullet point thing. And these two seem like a good place to start. Your phrasing is the sheer physicality of it all. My phrasing, and this is what actually got me thinking to do this 
this episode with you, I think I texted you the day he was born or the day after, was I felt the same flooding of joy. In other Mm -hmm. words, the same neurotransmitter flooded my brain, to put it into neurological terms, the moment Soren was born that Mm -hmm. I experience in my prayer times, when I have spiritual experiences through prayer, and as, as well, when I feel God sort of confirming something. This is the same feeling. The confirmation of a thought is a paler version of the flooding of joy that I've gotten in some contemplative experiences, which have caused me to place that so centrally in my own theology. Mm -hmm. And so I felt the exact same thing when Soren was born. It was the exact same flooding of joy. It might be oxytocin. I don't really know because it would be clearer to say it's oxytocin if I were the mother giving birth because we know that that's what it is. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's oxytocin, but whatever it is, it's the same one or the same combo, same cocktail recipe. And so that seems like a good place to start. So let me ask you, like, how much metaphysical weight do you place on those experiences, knowing that they are neurochemically based? Does your awareness of the mechanism detract from the importance that you associate with the experience? So yes and no. I would say since I've been thinking about this realization, you know, for six months since he was born, part of me is like, okay, I do need to take with some grain of salt maybe some of the more speculative things I might have claimed based on this about God or about spiritual insights or something like this, because Mm -hmm. it would just be easier for someone to mistake God's voice for their own in a sense, right? Like if these chemicals come naturally when my son is born, although there is a big asterisk there that I think that the fertility, the infertility stuff multiplied that and moved it up. So a lot Mm -hmm. of people who don't go through infertility, a lot of fathers especially do not have that immediate connection and Mm -hmm. it comes later with time. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are a bunch of studies about that and that's not anything to be ashamed of. I think that because we had spent four years waiting and -hmm. in all this pain that it happened immediately for me. Mm -hmm. So there's a part of me that does think, yeah, okay. I, I, and it relates to sort of Myron and our conversation, Myron Penner, frequent guest of the show, conversation around cognitive science of religion and like mm-hmm. so these things are there they're kind of baked into the to the cake of my brain so to speak on the other hand it's just made me think like well i already don't believe that religious and spiritual experiences are like non-physical mm-hmm. right so even if body soul dualism is true mm-hmm. and god reaches into my soul and my soul affects my brain my soul still affects my brain. So yeah. I'm still going to, there still will be a corresponding physical event yep. to a prayer experience, mm-hmm. which will mean if I'm feeling joy, that oxytocin is flowing through my brain. So right. yeah, a little bit, but mostly not because I already kind of have a, a robustly physical understanding of spiritual life, which is why we yep. get along so well theologically. Yep. So good question. I've thought about it. It doesn't knock me off my rocker too much. Right, right. So how let me let me say it differently. Let me, let me uh, ask a follow-up question. How seriously do you think people should take the relative strength of these experiences? Because okay, let me let me give you the background to that. Before I had Rowan, I was terrified that I would not bond with her. Uh, and I think in retrospect, this fear was linked to my lack of experience of God. 
So I'm which we aware. Talked, we talked about, yes, especially in the second have, half of that yeah. psychedelics episode, which was great. Yeah. 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 I am a person who has intensely emotional experiences, intensely connectional experiences and, and transcendent experiences. I can have very profound and powerful experiences, but I have had relatively few of those as being related to God. And that is an ongoing, like deep pain in my life. I'm actually much better at experiencing deeply profound, immersive, transformative experiences with other people, or even in nature at times than I am like with a personal God. And so I have a, an ongoing struggle of trying to evaluate how much weight I should place on the relative strength of my transcendent experiences or the lack thereof with different beings. And so my awareness, I don't always experience what I'm supposed to experience emotionally made me extremely fearful about how I would feel about Rowan. What happened? Well, okay. Well, actually, so I, I still struggle to parse exactly how I felt the night that she was born. Hmm. I can, it's much easier for me to explain what's happened since then. When, when the night that she was born, I was completely overwhelmed. I was completely overwhelmed. I mean, I, I had an unmedicated uh, labor, <laughs> so it was Ooh. extremely overwhelming. Yes. It, like the most, I mean, it's just like physically it's like it's an indescribably physically intense experience. It's like a whole hero's journey, to be honest. It's like you just, it's like you just like collapse at the end of it and you are, yeah, I just, I felt like I, in every sense of the word, I was just physically, emotionally, spiritually just collapsing as I crossed that finish line. And I just remember looking at her when she was like lying in the cot next to me at two in the morning and being like, what the f- just happened? Like just being like, what just happened? And being completely overwhelmed Every emotion that you can, you can experience, I think I was feeling. As the days went on, I started having more crystallized experiences of pure love, pure joy. But that first night was just, it was like an, I felt like it was a tsunami of neurotransmitters, a tsunami of, course, of, of right. hormones. And I just couldn't tell you what I felt. I was, I was just, I almost didn't have words for it. Martin, do you feel, do, do you feel guilt about that? Do you feel did, well, so weird? Or Because I, I, I would do, just hear, I, I hear that and go, and of course you had, I mean, yeah, yeah exactly. But I did. I, I think this is a problem with being self-aware and also being analytical is that you are constantly evaluating your own experience. You're constantly wondering, <laughs> which then what you're, am I th- you're changing your you experience exactly. by exactly. evaluating it in the moment. Yeah, right. Exactly. It's like the freaking like Copenhagen. It's a Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics in really in like in, in emotional <laughs> terms. Exactly. It's like my awareness of this experience and my observation uh, of it is changing the actual experience it. of it. Yes. Ah! Yeah. yeah. So it's like people who are simpler or who just have like a, a slightly more distance experience experience of, of it like martin Simpler, my husband was people who are more embodied we might say yeah let's, yeah, yeah. let's phrase that people <laughs> so who are martin, in I mean, their experience and not yeah. constantly self people who are on the other side of the continuum as woody allen might yeah. have a better yeah, yeah actually it's more pure experience than you and i have yeah it, well exactly exactly i think it's 100 percent true martin my husband had an effortless like pure just simple just a, like like a pure overwhelming attachment to her from day one i also did but it was it was it wasn't it was day just more two. complex yeah, yeah exactly it was well it was more complex and it wasn't yeah. instantaneous it was just sort of like i can't tell you exactly the progression of it but now i mean i, I would just mention to you i was on another call for work like another like academic sort of call and i was trying to um have a reasonable conversation about a paper structure and i was holding rowan and i was just like looking at her i was gazing into her eyes she was smiling at me and she was ruining me by this yeah. uh this this eye contact and the laughing and i found myself talking in baby talk 
to the academic on the other end of the line as we were trying to so like good. write the, a paper together. And I'm right. like, what has happened to my brain? So there is no doubt in my mind that I have now fallen completely head over heels in love with this little person. Right. But my experience in the, in, in, in the first day that she was born, and even in the days afterwards, I was constantly evaluating. I was constantly almost like judging myself and being like, oh, do I love her enough? Do I love her enough now? What about now? What about now? Do I love her enough? And I got to a point, I think probably like a weekend where I was like, I have got to let this go. I've just got to like, let my emotions be what they're going to be and like trust that I'll come out the other side of it and like be in love with my child. My best friend said this really great thing to me. She's like, you know, you really need to just trust that you will be able to evaluate and experience in memory and retrospect the reality and the full breadth of your love for your child, like better in memory than you can in the moment. You can't really evaluate it in the moment and its fullness that you will two or three years later. Just like trust that you will experience it better and more accurately in the context of their overall relationship with your child than you can in the moment it's happening. And that was actually really helpful. That is a perfect bridge to my answer to your question. So you initially asked about how should we weight the relative strength of these experiences. So you mentioned the hero's journey. I want to use this as use some Joseph Campbell talk as a way to anchor this. So think about weddings and other rites of passage. So there's the actual experience during your wedding which I don't know about you, but like I barely remember because there's a million things going on. You my wedding is so stressful. It's so right. stressful. Oh my god, I was so stressed out. You barely have time to eat. Uh, yeah. You. We were sitting in our hotel room after leaving for our first married night as a couple, and realized that like I had friends from California who were just down the street at a bar, and I was like, maybe we should have been hanging out with them like while they're yeah. here and do this tomorrow. You know, uh-huh. Uh-huh. it was just a weird experience. But I go to weddings now with my wife and I re-experience some aspect of our wedding and our marriage when I'm there. The rite of passage of a wedding ceremony Mm -hmm. did not end the minute my wedding ended for me. Mm -hmm. So that's a way of saying that I think what I'm moving toward is a a theological version of what your friend said, which is I may be moving away from – putting all this importance on one interaction with God, one interaction in prayer, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever, and more on like the broad trends, Mm -hmm. which I think is wise, Uh, especially sort of like if you can imagine like a truly bipolar person on one end and like a completely stoic person on the other end, the closer you are to bipolar and I'm Mm -hmm. somewhere, I'm somewhere in the middle. I have a little bit of like a manic episode, depressive episode stuff Mm -hmm. that, Sometimes happens for me, not clinical, but you know, I'm somewhere in between. The more you are that way, probably the more you should actually, it would behoove you to take the broad trends and averaged out rather than going for these momentary things, because actually things are sort of distorted for you in those moments, right? Yes. So that, that, that's kind of my answer to your question. Yep. It's probably moving me that way. No, no, I love that. I love that. And, and, and that helps me more clearly make the connection with God uh, that I've been thinking is actually there. So this idea of recognizing your own personality specificities and being self-aware enough to connect that to your relationship with God, as well as to your relationship with like the child being born and everything, I think is actually really important. So we've talked in the past about how I am a person who really struggles to 
experience God as real and as personal in the way that I want to. Um, but most of my evaluation of that is not based on like logical, rational reasons. It's more based on my experiential access to God that I feel is like limited. And so that's led me to become ex- kind of like obsessively focused on particular moments of spirituality, um, a sort of spiritual practice and experience and, um, and, and to experience them as like lacking. And then when that happens, when you, I can see that playing out in relationship to other people as well, or in relationship to Rowan uh, before she was born and then after she was born. And there's something that you lose, I think, when you get so caught up in the evaluation of a particular moment and, and are not able to just accept it as it comes. I think you lose something in the moment and then you lose something of the overall story. Yeah. Um, so let me let me connect this to, to drugs for a second, actually, and sure. ask, you, ask you a question. So you've done these psychedelic drugs. You've been a member of Trials. Uh, right. And uh, I have not done any of them, but I have smoked weed and I have drank alcohol. I think probably weed is closer to what I'm talking about here than alcohol. Uh, remember, I was in a band for 10 years. So <laughs> what drugs can do, right, is they actually get you out of your head. This is one yep. of the benefits of them. Yes. So you you're slowing down your sort of constant narration you know, your director's commentary of everything as it goes on. And I want to say that sometimes that Soren makes eye contact with me, that has a similar effect. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'll be thinking about something or, you know, running over a conversation in my head or thinking what I'm going to text back this person or whatever, working on an episode idea. Mm-hmm. And then like, he'll just look at me and mm-hmm. that just goes on pause for a while. Yes. And I, and he's sort of like unintentionally calling me out of that into the moment with him. Yeah. yeah. Right. So is it possible that there is a something going on with your lack of experience of God in that you have a hard time doing that? And yeah. that, so this is the question. Would you say that your experience with these drugs did that as well? It sort of was able to kind of slow down or disconnect the moment by moment commentary and, mm-hmm. and give you more access to the moment. And does that feel more spiritual to you? or not? There's a a lot of little questions. Yes, yes, absolutely. So I think the short answer to that question is, yes, uh, psychedelics have helped me and actually other other substances as well um, have helped me to get outside of my own head enough to experience what is already there. I think it was Sam Harris has said that psychedelics can be like a gateway drug to meditation. And I think that is just a hundred percent true. There is something about having a powerful experience that you know, where you know something will happen, right? Like you know, if you take a psychedelic drug, you are, something will happen in your brain. You will have a a transformative, transcendent experience of some sort. I mean, you can yeah, evaluate. That's it true later. if you take a strong enough weed edible too. Like exactly, you just, it will yeah. do something to you. Yeah, right. something will happen. Something will happen. In some ways, it can introduce you to what is possible, right? And then you go back and you build a spiritual practice. You build a, like a religious practice that kind of allows you to remember what is possible and to find other ways of getting there and to see the importance of getting outside of your own head and like engaging in other technologies and practices that allow you to do that. But what's cool about your time with your child Mm -hmm. is that it's doing it in a completely natural way. Natural is the wrong word. But you still have to choose to engage with it or not. So you know yes. when you when you look at Soren in his eyes and you're having a moment, there's a part of your brain that knows that you could resist it and go back to what you need to be doing with yes. your podcast, right? So it's yeah. not like overwhelming you. You have a level of agency in pursuing it and letting it happen. Well, that's what just, I'm saying. You yeah. have more agency than with drugs. 
So yes, I, exactly. I'm, it's preferable in that sense of mm-hmm. you have access to like the immediate, the now or yeah. whatever. Like I'm, I'm getting woo woo when I talk about time with my son in a way that I don't <laughs> normally do, which yeah. is very interesting to me, but you have access to that without the, the downsides of like, and I got two more hours till this drug wears off. Right. Where it's like, I'm kind of on this ride, no matter what, yeah. that, that could give you a signpost Another obviously problem, and I'm sure Sam Harris wouldn't disagree with this, is that most people don't use drugs for self-reflection and of course, imagining yeah. what's possible. It's like self-medication because they don't yeah. feel good, right? Yeah. So, and and if you're just, you might now you might still glimpse something. An mm-hmm. alcoholic might have a really great night of drinking with her close friend and glimpse yeah. something about that friendship that could be pursued yeah. without alcohol. You can do that, but something that's so cool about having the kid is that it's like, I don't know. It, it sort of makes you want to, to pursue more clean living, I guess. Cause yeah. you're just like, Oh, I can just get it through my yeah. kid. You know, like I can yeah. just feel connected to the moment just yeah, being with him. You know, I think it's almost like nature is working in your favor with your yes. baby yes. Be, and, but it's not overpowering. Right. So you're getting like a little boost up. It's like a little booster seat or something for your emotions. And for, at least for a mother who's bonding with her baby, there's a fascinating interplay between oxytocin. Yes, but also dopamine and the right. interesting research on oxytocin and dopamine as a, as related to like a mother bonding with her baby is that if either of those is being disrupted by like external stress or other kind of like predispositions to having like lower hormonal kind of portfolios, then that bonding can suffer. And so the the experience that you have in the moment with Soren is like dependent on this, on, on both the dopamine pathways and the oxytocin pathways. They're, they're relating to each other. They're sort of like causing each other and, and they're, they're, they're just like affecting the whole experience in individual ways, but also combining. And if the factors that influence either one of those pathways is being disrupted or is, is complicated or, or difficult, then your overall experience of Soren is going to be different. And so you can, you find right. yourself getting into a situation where you can lean into your experience with Soren, but you have to make sure to like that you're consciously saying, Oh yeah, no, I'm not going to, to allow the yeah. stress. I'm not going to allow the stress of my work or my right. PhD or whatever to affect this moment with my child. I'm going to sink into it. I'm going to lean into this moment with Soren when he's like looking at me and giggling. Yeah. Um, that's a choice. And it, you, it's like actually necessary for the relationship with your Soren to be what it can be just neurochemically. Right. And then that also, it should give us compassion for neuro atypical people. Yes. And to not then morally judge them yeah. because they're literally having those connections, you know, are impacted mm-hmm. through no choice of their own. And yep. doctors are very good at that, but but lay people were not so good. It makes me think of also that like it hasn't been lost on me that – I mean have you done this where you you just put their head up to your nose and there's something about their smell – yeah. And I've thought I've never done cocaine and I've never I've never snorted any drugs. I've never taken yep. any drugs through the nose before. Mm-hmm. But it has not been lost on me that it is basically what I'm doing. I am yep. like I am snorting drugs. Yes. I'm effectively yeah. in the most healthy way possible and I have yeah. done it where like there have been times where I've just been feeling like right before bed when you're kind of I don't know, I've been in an emotional state and just feeling all this love for him. And I have gone and taken him out of his crib while he's still asleep and just held him and smelled his head, trying not to wake him up because it's like Mm -hmm. free drugs. Mm -hmm. There are free drugs just laying there in the crib with no side effects. (laughs) 
uh, no, I know, I no know. come down from them. You know, it's like incredible. Yeah. I know. The other one, the other thing is the phrase, oh, I could just eat her up. Right. I, I want to had- talk about that. Before I had a baby, I was like, that is such a weird phrase. Like, why would we say, why would we look at a baby and say, oh, I just want to eat her up? And I'm like, that's kind of creepy if you think about it. It's like a, it's like one of the old original fairy tales where children are literally eaten. So weird. Um, But you can totally understand it now. Like you take the most comforting, satisfying, addictive experiences, like eating, like, like eating palatable food essentially. And you can see how there's something that like, it's just like this primal urge to bring closer to and just to bring into us. We don't know how, how else to get this good stuff into us. Yes, exactly. It's like, well, I, I guess it's like eating is what my Mm -hmm. brain is thinking. Yes. Okay. So that's perfect. Let's, we're going to do one more of these little bullet points before we take a break. And so this makes me think of uh, I, I have a, a thing about this. Like, I always want more with him. I mean, unless I am tired or I need to get something else done, like, I'm never sated. I'm yeah. never satisfied, right? Mm-hmm. But I keep coming back because it's the mm-hmm. best thing in the world. Because you're addicted. Because I'm addicted to it, right? But it's a good thing to be addicted to. I mm-hmm. certainly, first of all, this is something I've been thinking about a lot, but it's not the point I want to make. I'll just, we'll just say it as a sidebar. I understand people for whom their kids become their lives yeah. and I, I, I mourn for them. I pity them if it's still that way when the kids leave the house. Right. Yeah. And then they don't have anything going on and, and they don't have much sense of self, but I see how they get there mm-hmm. because nothing else is making you high all day. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like no surprise that people yeah. just get addicted to their kids and yep. it's like unambiguously, a good thing, generally speaking, mm-hmm. it's not looked down upon. And uh, in most cases, it's it's genuinely helpful. Mm-hmm. But what I wanted to say was there's this C.S. Lewis point, this argument that he makes that I don't know how I feel about it as a theological argument, but I keep thinking about it. And so his argument is that joy, and this is the, the main argument in his book, Surprised by Joy, I believe, mm-hmm. joy is a foretaste, right? So yeah. we have all these other desires and whatever feelings that do have satisfaction. So we have sexual uh, urges, we orgasm, and then they are sated for a time. We are hungry, we eat, and then we are not hungry anymore, at least until we get hungry again. But we never really have that with joy. We never really have that spiritually. I never really have that with Soren. I'm never like done unless I'm I am tired or done, you know, I need to go to sleep. I'm done for some other reason, but I never like get enough of him that I, now I don't need any for a while. Yeah. And yep. Lewis says, this is an argument for basically the platonic form of, of goodness or God or heaven or the afterlife that like, we're, we're supposed to infer in his mind from this, that there is a fulfillment of this. There is a, an eventual satiety, satiety, satiety. satiety? I've never yeah. said that word out loud. There is a a satiatedness that we will experience in the future. So now I would imagine that neither of you or I are like super convinced by that theological argument that that alone means like just because human beings have this feel for God that necessarily that means they get it. But I keep thinking about it. And I wonder if you've thought about that or what you think about all that sort of that line of thinking. Yeah, I think Lewis in some ways is strongest when he's talking about this part of hum- this aspect of human nature. Mm, yeah. um, and related to what you were just saying from that same book, he describes the experience of joy as being sort of that almost like a mirage, right? That you see, and as soon as you turn to look at it, it disappears, right? It's mm. like the experience of like 
of trying to capture the thing that you that is bringing you joy fails every time. And it's almost like as soon as you turn and look directly at it and try to analyze it and preserve it, you lose it completely. It's just this weird interplay of needing to just to want to seek it in the future, to keep seeking it, but also to just ex- let it be in the moment that it is and to just let that moment be like what it, just be full stop. So the pushback to his argument there is like, I'm not actually sure that what we really want is satiation. To continue that moment indefinitely. Well, but is it that or is there something about the pursuit that is also valuable? I'm not mm. sure. Like, like if you really had that moment looking into Soren's eyes indefinitely, would you, would, would you lose something? Is there something bittersweet? Is there something even more sweet about the five minutes before you know you're going to see him. I know yes. some, of the, some of the, some of my favorite parts of the day are like when Rowan starts to stir, especially the first thing in the morning, yeah. like when she starts to wake up and I know she's about to wake up and I know that when she wakes up and it's like her good time, she's going to like smile at me and she's going to be so excited about the world. And I love those few moments right before she wakes up because I know what's coming. I don't know if satiation is awesome as we think it is um this is in conflict with some of my other kind of thoughts but i do wonder if you would lose something if you if if the anticipation wasn't there anymore well spoiler alert for the good place skip ahead two (laughs) three minutes but this is something that they really dealt with um did did you watch that whole show i've not watched the whole thing so okay well then we uh, have to decide maybe we can just decide that i'm not gonna watch the rest of the show no you should watch it i'll (laughs) just say they deal with this question in a very interesting way and come down on a slightly different, they come down with a different answer than Lewis. Okay. So we should talk about that later when you've okay. seen it. Uh, okay. But it's very, yeah, it, they're dealing with exactly that question. I was just thinking about, so bedtime routine for Soren, if I'm sort of leading it, I'll change him into his jammies and his nighttime diaper. Cause we use cloth diapers during the day and that's good. Virtue signaling, virtue signaling. Well, this is all Jaffrey. She gets the virtue. I just play along and the jammies are good, but I'm anticipating the book that we're going to read Yeah. and I'm anticipating the song that we're going to sing him too. And like, that's part of the enjoyment of the beginning of bedtime is actually yes. the sweeter moments that come later in the yeah. bedtime routine. Yeah. yeah, I I I think I'm with you. This gets to why I can't really understand the afterlife uh yeah. because it it seems like so built in to everything good in this life is that there is finitude surrounding it. Yeah. Right? So if it were infinite, it would not be good anymore. Yeah. And at least not the way that a human brain experiences this world. Mm-hmm. So then if we need a world where infinitude, infinity would be good, then it sounds like we're in such a different world that I can't conceive of it. Yeah. And then how could we have any language about it? So, I know, but then you know, the other part of me, but so yeah, I understand the importance of finitude when it comes to like a loving relationship with my baby, but I don't buy it for myself even when we're talking about death. Like I'm never going to be one of those people who says death is totally okay. Like, oh, we can only appreciate life because we know we're not going to have it forever. I've never bought that argument. I will never be okay with the idea that people die, at least if there's not an afterlife. If there's not an afterlife, yeah. it will never be okay that people die. And I'm not, I, mean, I just will never be one of those like happy atheists who who's just like, right. oh, yeah, that's, that's all there is. And I just appreciate every mo- moment more because I know it's, it's finite. No, no, it's still I sucks. do feel like – no, it sucks. I do think you can, you can appreciate moments more. I think there's a middle passage there. 
you can say the finiteness and even my uncertainty as to afterlife, the fact that I don't know that Mm -hmm. I'm just going to go on to have a much longer and much better experience. Mm -hmm. The fact that I don't know that does actually make me appreciate this life more. Mm -hmm. I can say that without then being sort of exultant about it. Like Mm -hmm. I, I also feel that if there's no afterlife, that that is actually the largest bummer ever in the universe is that especially for people who just have a shitty experience, people or animals who have a very shitty experience. And then that's all they get is the single saddest fact of the universe. If that's a fact. And I don't, I, but I actually have the opposite reaction. I wish I could change this in myself. I have the opposite reaction contemplating the possibility that there is no life after death actually detracts from the joy that I find in, in daily experiences. Really? Because it just makes you depressed or what? Because there's something – because it's not what it could be. Like Mm. it's not what it could be and I I have this sense that we are made to participate in love and joy and creativity and anything that ends that is bad. It's bad. And so it will never be okay that this might be the last time I hug a loved one or the last time that I experience what it's like to see an amazing Scottish sunset. It will just, it will never be okay. I mean, we can say, yeah, it's more valuable, but my emotional experience of it is it's made more bittersweet. Yeah. No, I hear that. I I've been kind of trying to kick around if I could get myself as a Westerner to think more Easterly about this. Eastern, yeah. Easternly, not Easter, yeah. <laughs> uh, Eastern, like they're in Eastern traditions to the extent that I understand them, which is very poorly. Mm-hmm. There is an idea of like balance and there's a moral value of like appropriateness, balance, interconnectedness that actually if you can detach from your own sort of attachments to what you want and your experiences that you want that actually you come to recognize that all in all things are better if everything has its time and that that actually, I mean, I may be uh, adding here to what I haven't read this particularly, but that that actually is better for all creatures if we could just like, it is better to be that way. And I don't know that I can get there. I think I may be too formed by Yep. Christianity that I'm like, no, like, like eternity with God is definitely better. It doesn't have to be balanced. I mean, maybe, maybe it has to be that way in this universe, but maybe there's a future universe or maybe, you know, whatever there's a, another, maybe consciousness is connected to some other thing and it's a better, you know, but I don't know. I, I've, I've been kicking that around, but I haven't really landed anything. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think I'm at a point where if I could just change my programming on this one and be more easterly, easternly, as you would say, I think I would. Uh, I, I think I might be too far gone. I might have been yeah. too steeped in all the cultural, biocultural forces that have psychosocial forces that have shaped me. Um, it might be impossible for me to truly embody and inhabit a space where I'm not lying to myself. And I truly am okay with the idea that we're all going to die and there's nothing else. Like... Yeah, Maybe. that's interesting. That's a that's a yeah. really nice dark place to, to take a break. <laughs> take a break, yeah. But when we come back, we're gonna go to your bullet point. All you said is there can't be a hell. And I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. I mean I have some ideas what you mean, but I'm excited yeah. to hear them. So we'll be back in a few minutes. The Patreon exclusive episode feed has uh, an embarrassment of riches in the last week or so. First, I released 
um, my interview with Dustin Kensrue, the singer of the band Thrice, about the Thrice song Silhouette, which initially appeared on his patron-only feed for his podcast, Carry the Fire. And we, we did a two-parter. So uh, this coming week, there will be an additional episode where he and I uh, get cosmic, as I as I <laughs> describe it. We just go deep on a bunch of stuff and a lot more theologically based kind of a conversation. And the, both of those two episodes are available on both of our feeds. So the idea was just to kind of give each other's patrons a sense of what you get on the other person's patron feed. But also, just five days ago, four days ago, another patron-exclusive episode came out, which is a follow-up to the regular feed episode, The Quagmire of Modern Missions with Jim and Brianna Randall. So they came back on and answered your guys' questions and a bunch of follow-ups and and some follow-ups that I had with them just about that original really excellent interview and episode, uh, just getting into a bunch of nitty gritty of, of, you know, why are they still missionaries? Why not become entrepreneurs instead? Do they think there is a healthy way to do this kind of missions work? Uh, and, and much, much more. So bunch of cool stuff on that feed right now, uh, to become a patron, you go to patreon.com slash Dan Coke. There's a link in the show notes to that. It's five bucks a month. If you don't have that right now, you can pay less. There's a sliding scale. Just email me at youhavepermissionpodcast at gmail.com. And then, of course, patrons also have access to the exclusive Facebook group. And, you know, I'm a member of a lot of these Facebook groups, uh, partly as kind of market research, frankly, also partly um, as research for my eventual uh, full-time job of seeing clients in a therapeutic setting, many of whom are dealing with religious or spiritual trauma or at least change of some sort. Uh, and so I, I'm in these groups and I got to say the, the paid group makes a difference. Um, and it's just people take it more seriously. It is less likely to devolve into kind of tribalism, but I'm biased, I guess a little bit because my group, I get to sort of set partially set, you know, the boundaries of what I think is healthy for that group. Uh, and people do quite a good job of abiding by that. Anyway, I'm rambling. Uh, join the Patreon if you'd like to. I, I don't mind if you don't. I'm still happy to have you as a listener. So let's get back to the episode with Sarah. Okay, Sarah, so you put this as one of your little bullet points. There can't be a hell. Obviously, I would imagine you already didn't believe in hell or at least that it's unpopulated or something like that. But how does how has having a child made you more confident about that? Right. So I would say I was almost as confident before having a baby that there was no like hell in the way that most people conceive of a hell for basically the same reasons that I do now, you know, like to this to the extent that I am like relationally involved with other people. I am certain that any relational God would not be able to call it love right. by allowing the existence of hell. Like, it's just not a thing. So when I say that now, about have, after having had a baby, it's it's sort of like an exponentially 
more intense experience of that non-possibility. And again, when I say hell, I mean the sort of hell that people think of when they think of a personal God, like a personal God who loves humanity, is relationally engaged with them and wants to be personally engaged with each and every person, knows people in a way that humans understand knowing, right? To the extent that God is a person and knows and loves humans individually and collectively, there just cannot be a hell. So basically it's like given our understanding of what it means to be a person, what it means to love, what it means to be a human person, it's just like, it's not possible to think of God as being that and condemning people to eternal torment. It's just not, a, it just, it, it just doesn't happen. I think you could say that there is a being who consigns people to hell and is a being that we call God, but it would no longer be a God that is personal and loving. Right. I mean, I don't have much to add here, except that this is a common feature actually of stories I've heard of people coming out of more conservative theological mm-hmm. backgrounds is they say, when I had my kids, it started to make me think like, God's got to love them at least as much as I love them. And that, you know, that kind of thing. And I think that I had gotten, I had gotten there. I didn't need a kid to get there. You know, I think anyone without kids would be like, yo, I can get there without having a baby. (laughs) Of course, I didn't believe in hell. I've been a universalist since I was 21. Yeah, exactly. And so, but, but having a baby, I mean, I look at Rowan and it's not even, I actually don't think it's even tied to like rushes of overwhelming emotion. I just experience her as a person who deserves my love and connection and proximity and closeness just like full stop period. She will always get that from me. She will always deserve that from me. The nature of our relationship is such that there is absolutely nothing that she could do in the world that would cause me to create distance between her and I, or to harm her. I I guess you could have some sort of like weird twisted version of hell where hell was restorative, where like there is like restoration of the relationship at the end of it or something, but like eternal torment in hell is never going to be a thing that will fit within any sort of portrait of God as personal and loving. And it makes me think that like, I think God as loving parent might be, I don't, you know, don't quote me on this, but it's, it's (laughs) among the most distinctive and I think beautiful, unique contributions of Christianity Mm -hmm. Uh, and maybe, maybe Judaism as well. Yeah. Uh, the Judeo-Christian tradition, it's qu- I think it's not quite what most Muslims would say about God, although that God is loving and, you know, loves peace and loves justice and Muslims describe Allah warmly, mm-hmm. but the kind of Abba, right? right? John Cobb's book, Jesus's Abba, like I think he called it that for a reason, right? And I actually haven't yeah. read that book. It's yeah. on my shelf, but that's kind of a distinctly Christian idea. And yeah. so it's interesting to become a parent within the Christian tradition and think about specifically being a parent and how that is a different experience than being an uncle or being a friend or whatever. I mean, the one thing I will say, and this is probably getting into some of the other questions that we have, is that having a baby has made me more certain that there is no personal loving God that sends people to hell, but it has actually led me to understand how people in the natural theology camp look at the experience and say, actually, but if that is true, that there is no hell because of this experience, it might also be sort of true that we have some explaining to do if we could experience these sorts of things and there's no source for them. Great. So yeah, I, I did want to kind of get into natural mm-hmm. theology here. This Let's do it. Um, by which we just mean it's theologizing from experience to claims as opposed mm-hmm. to theology coming from scripture or something like that, mm-hmm. right? So you're taking the human experience and you're thinking, well, what must God be like? That's natural theology. So I'm going to just kind of verbally process here. I'm kind of getting to a point where this experience that I get to have with my son 
and that most people, and again, that's, that's an important asterisk. That's only most, but it is most, most people get to have this kind of a connection. And even if they don't have kids, they, they have these relational connections that are naturally augmented by neurotransmitters in their brain. That's really important for me here in what I'm saying is that it's not that you and Jaffrey and I and Martin are exceptionally moral people. We didn't have to do anything to get these experiences with our kids. Mm -hmm. It Mm -hmm. is a part of the deal. Like Mm -hmm. the oxytocin flood is built in. Uh, I've been using the language of grace and gift a lot to to think and talk about Soren. That really seems like good language for this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I do not deserve it. I've done very minimal work to be open to it. It's a lot closer to a sledgehammer that knocks me in the head when he smiles at me and I have no fucking control and I didn't choose anything. Right. Mm -hmm. So if we are born into this world, yes, with all its pain and suffering, yes, with its unmet desires and for some fraction of beings, a truly despicable existence experience, but it also has this insane gift, this undeserved, you know, grace of human relational connection. Mm-hmm. Either we've got uh, at the source of this universe that makes this possible, as Phil Clayton says, at least a mind-like entity, and yeah. he thinks more than a mind, but at least mind-like, who wanted us to have this, or we have an insanely happy accident in a universe that happens to exist that gives yeah. us this, which yeah. always leads me back to the same place I always end up when I start considering not being a theist anymore. And it's a kind of Pascal's wager without the high stakes of like, look, if those are my two options, you know, I'm going to live as if there's a yeah. God. Like, right. because I wouldn't really live. I don't even know in what ways it would be different and what would be the mm-hmm. benefit of not living that way, you know, like I'm going to lean into this beautiful, gracious, you know, gift thing here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a bunch of other reasons for that as well. That, that's not the only reason, but it's like yet another place that takes me to that same fork in the road. And I always yeah. just keep choosing the one side of that fork. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a more fun, more beautiful way to live. I think so. There are two possible critiques of this. And I'm saying this to myself as well, because it's something I'm Great. really in the mix, mixed of. But so, um, I mean, one is the straight up, like the kind of the classic anthropic principle like kind of, uh, about when it comes to arguments for God. Right. So we yeah. like there's this fine tuning argument like, wow, the universe is so fine tuned that humans exist and, and we have conscious beings. And we have beauty and art and music and all like none of this could have existed if the universe hadn't been specifically fine tuned. But the argument against that is anth- anthropic principle is that, well, of course, it seems that way to us because we're here there to observe it, right? So, of course, we think it's amazing and perfectly tuned because it has perfectly fine-tuned us to think that that's amazing and perfect, right? So, it's like this circular thing where we experience the specialness of our world and the way things are because there's no we i mean because that's the way that we evolved essentially and this is the way i mean we if things had been different then our experience of this would be different as well so of course we experience our babies as being little like microcosms of like divine love (laughs) but but because we happen to wake because of course we we only but that actually doesn't quite get to what i'm saying and i okay points taken but we also could have woken up in a universe that was quite similar Except there were entirely fear-based motivations for keeping our children safe. Ah, You can imagine something like that, just like a shittier version of this world. What if – and so this this is also – this is good. This is my second one. Um, 
What if though, Dan, you and I have grown up in families and social contexts that were exceptionally loving and kind and supportive of the sort of love that we now feel for our children. We all know tons of people and uh, actually it's not even just like individual outliers. There are whole societies and cultures where familial, like parent child warmth is not really a thing. We all know people who, I'll just say fathers, we all know men who seem to have very harsh views of the relationship between them and their children. And I think oftentimes there's probably a causal connection. I'm I'm not entirely sure which direction it goes. I think there might be a causal direction though between how people experience their children and how they experience God. If you have not had an experience of God as loving and have grown up in a world where you believe there is a father God who is harsh and authoritative and disciplinary focused and, and is just like a kind of a dick all around, then that will probably impact the way that you experience your children, right? So I think there are things that lead us to have the sort of neurochemical experiences that we do. You and I probably were primed to have sort of amplified versions of this. I can imagine actually that for most of human history, men and women probably didn't have the emotional space to fully experience their children in the way that you and I are. Because of uh, survival worries, basically. Yeah. and It's a Maslow thing. Yeah, I mean, they didn't all have paid maternity and paternity leave, you know? So it's like they didn't all have the sort of things that are allowing us to experience relationship with our child as a good. But okay, but I will push back on that. So maybe not to the extent that we have been able to have it, but there are studies that show if a father has skin to skin contact in the first week Mm -hmm. with their kid, they are closer fathers over time. They do more stuff with the kid. They feel more connection. So even if that's true, and maybe we live at a time where we get to maximize that more than people Mm -hmm. living other times, there's still a built in physical mechanism for relationality. And all you have to do is touch the fucking skins. Yeah. So it's not, you know what I mean? So it's true. And maybe people living 200 years from now, will maximize loving relational thing in a way that we can't even imagine. And they'll Mm -hmm. say, well, Dan and Sarah couldn't have experiences like we do now in 2300. Right. Okay. But we're still experiencing it. And, and if people's like that, the elasticity of expectation and experience is actually one of, I think the greatest gifts God has given us, if you want to phrase Mm -hmm. it that way, because Mm -hmm. it actually reduces, like if there was a concrete marker for a good or a life that someone felt good about, then mm-hmm. most people would be f-ed because yeah. it, you know, our, our quality of life and all these expectations shift so dramatically over time, but there isn't like we have, we're yeah. very pliable and we're very plastic in that sense. And so most people, you know, people on their deathbeds that, that grew up with shitty parents and then a harsh discipline environment that they gave for their kids, people still say, my kids are like the best thing in my life as they're dying. Like that seems pretty universal. Even, okay. So let's say it is universal. Let's just grant you that. Why can't it just be as simple as us not being able, because of our evolutionary psychology, like maybe it's just, we are not able to experience our children as anything less than amazing and beautiful and worthy of love and attention and all the things that we can give them because that's what the species needs to survive. It could be that simple. No, I, that might be, and it also might be both in terms of God creates a universe such that those are the kind of pressures that will create Mm. these humans whose, and I think about this a lot, whose bodies work pretty damn well. Like all the, all the survival pressures of evolution have fine tuned us in an, to Mm -hmm. an insane degree. Think about 
like just cuts healing on your arm. Right. They just naturally right. heal. What? Mm-hmm. You know, like so so there's a beautiful side to the dark side of competition. There is the kind of like we could make the fine tuning argument. And I did an episode with David Wilkinson about that fairly recently. So people can listen to that if they want to get deeper into the sort of calculus there. But there's also just the phenomenological experience of being a human. I'm left feeling grateful and I feel like I ought to feel grateful because I didn't do anything to deserve these gifts. And then the question is grateful to what or whom, right? So it's either God or the universe and in mm-hmm. either way, it's a pretty similar feeling of gratefulness. Now, of course, this doesn't mm-hmm. I'm not making an argument for like, so you should be Baptist. You know, it doesn't yeah. go that far or that specific, yeah. but just grateful to God or grateful to whatever feels like the natural thing, that gratitude. Interesting. That's interesting. So when I think about it, yes, I am grateful for Rowan, but there, I emotionally, it's not even just like a rational thing. I emotionally hold that intention with all of the pain and frustration and like, there's an overall package here. And I think that for my, my experience of Rowan definitely falls in the good category of that, but there's an overall package here. And for me, emotionally, just even just the emotional experience of this is not so overwhelming that I'm like, oh, obviously this indicates a good and loving creator. I, I recognize that. Yeah. I experience Rowan as an unmitigated good. Absolutely. And I'm also aware though, that I couldn't have experienced anything other than that. Mm-hmm. The, the cocktail of drugs that evolution has gifted me with, it may, forces me to experience gifted, it in this way. But gifted is the right word. And when you get a gift, right. you're grateful for it. Yeah. So I think though, I think though I would have to go deeper than this. So I think it needs to be, it's not as simple for me as being like, oh, I experience love when I look at my child, therefore God. It's something deeper. I think it's almost like the pattern of evolution itself or the pattern of the structure. Maybe it's like the structure of the nature itself maybe needs to be explained. It's not yeah. one feature of the natural world that I think needs to be explained. I think it maybe it's the whole pattern itself, the system. I'm not making an argument for God's existence, really. I'm just saying that I have a feeling of gratitude, Mm -hmm. and I don't think there's a more appropriate feeling than gratitude, even if there's no God. Yeah. And so I think I'm more I'm more in the awe camp. I'm more in like the wow, how the hell? Let's talk about that. So that's one of your other you're talking about wonder as a discipline you put in a oh I did yeah in a little note to me. Yeah, I think. So what's the difference between gratitude and, and awe and wonder? I think maybe for me personally, the difference, I don't think it's a programmatic difference. I think for me personally, the difference is that gratitude for me comes and goes. I might not be feeling particularly grateful at 3 a.m. when I have Mm. had like 45 minutes of sleep, right? That comes and goes. But every time that I look at Rowan and realize again that my body created her, it's like, my, I didn't, do, I didn't do anything. In fact, after how clinical and forced IVF was, I am, I was so surprised that as soon as they put that embryo inside of me, my body just took off. My body just figured the rest out. Right, right. And it was insane to me that that genetic combination, that the package of genetic material that she was when they put her in me took hold in my body as an environment and without me doing anything to direct the process at all, like I could have read exactly zero things about pregnancy and childbirth and she would still have been the amazing little miracle that she is. Like my, I didn't need to know yeah. anything about this. My body just figured this shit out. And, and so like when I look at her and I'm like, oh my God, like her eyeballs, her eyes 
grew inside of me. My body grew eyes. My yeah. body grew a heart and her brain that is ex- increased, that is growing physically at a an exponential heart rate. That will not stop beating for like 85 years. I know. It will never yeah. stop. It just yeah. keeps. Imagine anybody ever inventing anything that yeah. didn't break down for 85 years yeah. continuously. Yes. It's impossible. You can't even imagine yeah. it. Yeah. And I can step back and realize that there are perfectly explicable natural explanations uh, yes, for me- every mechanisms. step of this process. Yeah, mechanisms. Yes. Great. There are me- mechanisms. but the I'm fact so grateful that- for the mechanisms. <laughs> okay, fine. I'm grateful for the mechanisms. But, yeah. the fact, but the fact that that would have all been contained in these tiny little packages of genetic material, yeah. that that in combination with a healthy environment would have allowed all of these things to grow appear- like apparently with no direction from myself or anybody else. That does elicit the experience of awe and wonder in me in a way, but but it also raises big questions for me. So that isn't, I mean, for me, it's like, I recognize that there are mechanisms, but the, even the fact that there are billions of physical mechanisms that are somehow cooperating to produce a human suggests something about the structure of the universe that is a little bit more than I can get to often uh, if I take God out of the picture or take some sort of ultimate being out of the picture. I think I would, for years now, I would have said I was somewhere between a religious naturalist and a theist, you know, somewhere like, like depending on the day and my experiences, I was sort of wavering between some sort of, some sort of like extent static uh naturalism and a personal god sometimes getting into a personal god is hard for me but i've moved more in that direction i think where it's like i would now say the world is at least relational the universe the structure of the universe is at least complex informational and holds the potential for relationality that's something there's something really non-reductionistic and super relational um about that Let's let me put a pin in in that the uh, universe and religious naturalism will come right back to it. But as you were talking about the little genetic package of the embryo that was Rowan, that was Soren. And we the funny thing is we have a photo of his of him as an embryo mm-hmm. that we keep by our bed. Yeah. Yep. And so we're because of the IVF thing like that is made sort of physically and visually manifest to us mm-hmm. that like that was you. It, mm-hmm. Like there's a direct line between the photo that of this embryo and you now a six month mm-hmm. old. It makes me think of Jesus saying that the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, mm-hmm. right? So a mustard seed is tiny mm-hmm. and eventually it becomes a big tree mm-hmm. and all the plans for the tree, other than the energy that comes through photosynthesis mm-hmm. and water. Yep. Other than that, every it's like just add photosynthesis and, and yep. water and this yep. little seed will become that tree. Mm-hmm. You don't, No one has to do anything. Nobody has to like mm-hmm. choose that way. It will fall from another mustard tree yeah. and become yeah. its own tree. Mm-hmm. And there's something very similar. Now, of course, we have to, you know, the human body, you have to eat enough food and drink enough liquids and stuff like that. But you, you're doing ordinary stuff that you mm-hmm. would normally do. And you're just responding to your bodies, whatever. And then she will become a baby. Right. And like and then she will become an old woman, too. Like there are other things that will keep happening. Right. It just it's built in. And, you know, that makes me wonder, like, is the kingdom of God in our kids? Is it like our kids? Is it, you know, like, I don't know. I'm not not trying to make a big argument here of like the proper interpretation of that parable or Mm -hmm. saying. Mm -hmm. But, man, there's some really significant resonance there. Yeah. And I think 
like when I look at Rowan, I don't just see her as a baby. I see her as an embryo, right? I see her as the embryo for sure. But I also see her like in the future. I think of all the things that she's going to do. I think of all the ways that I'm going to break her heart and she's going to break my heart. I think of all the ways that I'm going to hurt her and she's going to hurt other people. I think of all the ways that she is going to experience disappointment and pain and joy and hope in the world. Like like, you're such a killjoy, Sarah. You're such a killjoy. No, it's it's a whole package though. She's going to have this richly textured life. She's going to do so many awesome things. and, And like, I am loving seeing her explore like and just like her fascination are we have a wrought iron bed and it has like these swirls like on the wrought iron and yeah. with like a white uh a white curtain behind it she could stare at those like wrought iron swirls for like five hours and be completely happy with it and right. like i just love seeing how mesmerized she is by the tiniest things in the world and so when i look at her i don't just see the seed that she was or like the tiny little sapling that she is i see her whole life i think about the fact that she will she will die. She'll have babies of her own. Maybe like there is like a whole thing wrapped up in like who she is at this moment. So yeah, maybe there is something about the potentiality theme of like the mustard seed or like an embryo where as a parent, you don't just see a moment in time, right? You, you take into account the whole life. Maybe that's why I think that God could never send somebody to hell or that there just never would be a hell because yeah. God takes the whole package into account. Like yeah, God sees right. people, God sees Hitler, and you're not supposed to use the Holocaust analogy, but like God sees Hitler as a baby. As right? a baby, yeah. Yeah, Hitler was a baby. Oh. So there we go. <laughs> let's oh, not. God. Okay, let's move on. That's like a twisty turn. <laughs> let's just excerpt that and play it at the beginning of the episode. Hitler was a baby. Can it's I say true. something? Please. Can I, can I say something else? Yeah, let me say something else about. Um, let's get the Hitler baby taste out of our mouth. Yeah. Blah, 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 blah. Um, Something that I have that you that you're reminding me of here is that I, as a female, have access to experiences that you, as a male, will never have here too. Because you talk about how awesome it is to recognize that your baby just grew inside of Jaffrey without her actually like doing anything. And it's like I'm experiencing that still with like breastfeeding, right? Oh, right. Um, yeah. And there's like a whole relational dynamic to that that is like, I can't, I actually feel really bad for men that they don't get to experience breastfeeding. I'm but super you don't jealous get to ex- about it. Yeah. And you don't get to experience pregnancy. Like there is so much bonding that happens when you feel this baby inside of you. Like yeah. it was one of the greatest gifts of my life to have, have been able to feel Rowan's growing movements, the changes in her movements, the changes in her, just where she was in my body. It's like a feeling that I can never, re- I'll never be able to describe. In fact, sometimes I miss being pregnant because of that feeling of the, the yeah. intimacy of having her inside of my body. This makes me think about panentheism. We don't have to go down that road, but there is something about like holding your baby inside of your actual body that resonates with like a lot of panentheist themes for me. Um, and then Such like the that we labor. are all within God. Right. Yes. So yeah. that we all somehow somehow exist within God in some way. And we don't have to get too literal about God having an actual physical body, but right. like but but there is a way of talking about God as holding within God's self the whole of creation that rings very true with me having had a baby inside of me and then even just the birthing process right i mean again i i think that obviously it's easy to look back on labor and be like oh it was such a great experience but like my experience of labor was one that was it was horrific kind of but like in like or it was awful maybe awful it was awful in the true sense of the word, like full of awe and awful, like as in like, oh my God, this is like the most painful thing I've ever experienced in my life. It is also the most intensely magical thing you've ever experienced. Like, I think I will be unpacking theologically the labor experience, like 
for the rest of my life. Like, and so that transition from especially holding, if you do it four more times. <laughs> oh my god! And I did, a, and I did it on medicated, so it was just like I. Will felt you do everything. that again, or would you do medication next time? Um, I think I would do it on medicated again, especially because I know now like what to expect. So I think being a little more mentally prepared for sure. like this, yeah. the, the 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 process of labor itself. You, I mean, you get to you get to a, a point in labor where you you just don't know if you're going to survive it. Like there is no, you yeah. can't see beyond it. Like I got to a point in the middle where I was like, you are no longer in control of this process. Your body is along for the ride yeah. until you get to the final stage, and then you do have agency again, and that's a really amazing thing when you realize in those yeah. last hours that oh, I'm now at the pushing stage, and I have agency here. I can push this child out of me and until then though you don't have agency you are along for the ride and you have got to like surrender to that process and then you get to be an active part again when you're actually pushing that baby out but you get to a point in the middle where like time like ceased to exist and I wasn't sure that there would be an after and like I didn't think I was going to die but like I just couldn't imagine there being an after and like there's just so much in that whole experience of like pregnancy labor and then the first moments it's it's like that in itself is a, a distinctly like female experience i get to feel very grateful for having yeah i wonder if there's a little natural theologizing to be done about there being these experiences that we have in in the routine course of things mm-hmm. as human beings where you are just along for the ride there are domains of human existence that we just have no sort of piloting control over. Mm -hmm. And labor is probably the strongest example of that. But I can think of other things too. I mean, I think about panic attacks or other times where adrenaline floods the brain. That is a wave that you just have to ride and you don't have much agency except to remind yourself that it's going to take time. I'm not sure what, how you would describe with labor. Is it that you're taken out of the moment or that you're so profoundly in the moment that you can't see other moments? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, yeah, for me, it was that like I was so in the moment, so in my body that you lose sense of your context a bit. Other things fade away a little and that can be a good thing or a bad thing. Right. I mean, when you're in the middle of like a panic attack or for me, I mean, I'm someone who has like high highs and low lows. And when I'm in a low low, it's like it feels like there is nothing outside of that emotional low. Right. Nothing outside of it. Like I will never feel good again. That's what it feels like. And um, totally there's something about being able to contextualize that. But on on the flip side. There is a positive, it's like a negative and a positive, right? Like when it's the negative, when you're stuck in that deeply traumatic kind of experience, you can't see that you'll ever be out of it again and it, and it makes the suffering worse. But on the other hand, when you're in, in an extremely positive experience, you don't want to be constantly reminding yourself that it's not going to last forever. You want right. to be you in that be moment. In yeah, right. Mm. I don't know, I, the tension. I wonder if that's something about drugs that is that people want and or is actually Mm -hmm. valuable as well is to just have an experience where your agency is diminished. Now, of course you don't want, you want to only do that in a safe, in a time where that is safe. Uh, It's very bad to be on drugs. If you're the sole parent for your baby, for instance, that is a very bad situation because you might be needed to have agency, right? If they start choking on something, but Mm -hmm. um, you know, like in the trials that you did or whatever, or just, is this maybe something that people are going for that, that they also want in, in ecstatic religious experiences and in, Mm -hmm. in more involved liturgical experiences is like, 
when we have these experiences of being out of control for a time where we are along for a biological ride, let's call it. There's something very creaturely about that experience where you're in that moment, you're not a co-creator. And, Mm -hmm. and so you could frame that positively or negatively positively. You could say, it's good to be reminded of one's creatureliness. It's good to be a creature. Mm -hmm. There is actually something very right and good and, Mm -hmm. and like, wholesome and like whole making, making us into a whole person about being a creature. On the other side, you could say being a co-creator, having agency, uh, there's a lot of anxiety about making bad choices and wrong choices. And if you can take yourself out of that, then you can get rid of that anxiety for a minute. I would say both of those seem to be true. There is a yin and a yang to these experiences of just being so in the moment and outside of that flow of uh, conversation, internal conversation. Yeah. I would say that like my experiences on psychedelics, but also my experience with being pregnant and then the labor itself is probably very poignantly. Um, And then the, the week since then, I think I've been most aware of how our whole lifespans are often present, I think in in individual moments. Right. So I, on some of my, um, my psychedelic kind of experiences, I've experienced myself being like held by like the mother creation, like mother creation, like the mother energy of, I hate, I mean, I listen to myself right now. Right. But like, but, but <laughs> at least but I like don't held, have to say it. Yeah. I know, but like held by some like primal feminine kind of energy. And, or I think you could even say God, you know, God, like nurturing God being held, but also being an active participant in like creating and going forward and exploring and, and like the kind of the, the, the go, go part of things as well. One thing I remember so very clearly from labor was how much I missed my mom. I wasn't experiencing a lot of sort of extra moment emotion. Like I wasn't thinking very much beyond my context, but there were moments, there were so many moments in the worst parts of labor, the most difficult parts of labor where I, the only person I wanted was my mother and my mom died for context for the audience. Like my mom, my mom died when I was 16 and we were very close and she was an extremely warm and nurturing person. And she was the only person I wanted. I I felt like such a little girl. Uh, I felt like, at the mercy of what was happening to my body and aware that I was bringing another little girl into the world. And then even in the days after, I felt like there was this, there was this profound tragedy that my own mother wasn't there. Um, like there was something about that, like holding a little girl, but also needing to be held as a person. And this is not specific to being a woman. I think this is just being a parent in general. It's like you're aware of your own finitude and your own creatureliness as you're caring for the needs of your baby. You know, it's like you're aware of sort of like the upward dimension of your dependency as well and of your kind of your need as well and of of the sort of yeah it's like even as you're looking down and holding your child there's a looking upwards as well that's extremely relational so it's not only that you are creating life it's also you are a part you have been created or you have you are reaching forward for something uh so there's a bi-directionality to this whole thing for me that makes me think of a a lot of things one is that we're watching this show dark on netflix which is this like sci-fi german show and and without giving too much of it away it asks a lot of really interesting questions about time, generationality. There's a mechanism by which some characters are able to see, you know, their own uh, parents like before they had them mm-hmm. and as children and stuff. And yeah. and so it made me think of that, this idea of, you know, past and future are present in moments as well. And mm-hmm. yeah, and I think that being a parent actually brings that to the surface in a way that is not usually there because – you're always thinking about your kid's future. That's why mm-hmm. you make certain decisions. 
it is baked into the decision making process in a way that it's not baked into most of the things I decide for myself on a day. It's like, well, where would I like to eat lunch? Uh, I mean, I might be thinking about a paper that's due next week or a project at work or something, but I'm not really thinking about maybe I should be. I'm not thinking about retirement very often. Yeah. Probably my retirement would be better yeah. if I was. But I, but yeah. with Soren, I mean, it's every decision is based on like so that he can have normal development, right? So that mm-hmm. he can have a full life ahead of him yeah. in a way that, yeah, you just don't have that in your decisions about yourself. So that's really interesting of, yeah, those moments being together. We have about 10 minutes left. And I want to talk about – you mentioned this thing, moving – maybe further away from religious naturalism toward proper theism. Can you, first of all, just define religious naturalism for us? Yeah. Religious naturalism is sort of an outlook, a perspective. Um, it's academic and like experiential perspective on the world where you experience and you recognize religious dimensions of the natural world. And people try to essentially develop ways of thinking and talking about that religious aspect of nature without invoking a theistic God uh, yeah. in the kind of Christian sense of the word usually. So some some Buddhism could fall under this category, right? Yeah. Yep. But mostly it would not be tied to the major religious traditions. It would be a kind of a newer idea. Right, right. So basically religious naturalists want to say that the best parts of religions that we recognize can be had without needing to invoke invoke the metaphysical structure and the perhaps more harmful theologies that are attendant those religions. But so you're saying that there's something that seems personal and what this this last note of yours I'll bring up, you, you say God as a person, the, the neurochemical differences between just having an experience yeah. and having an experience with a person. Right. Mm-hmm. And so you're you're having this thing with Rowan. Mm-hmm. And so I imagine that ties in to this yep. maybe slide away from toward yep. uh, a God, yep. a, a theistic God. Yeah, I think if anything, what is I, I've always been acutely aware that I am very unhappy with religious naturalism being the whole story. I am at least going to be a religious naturalist, but I will be very disappointed in the universe if that's all there is. <laughs> yeah. And I've talked about this before, some, and I'm kind of working on it academically as well. Like, is there something about our desire for a personal God in particular that is theologically significant? Can that get us somewhere, right? Can that desire itself, that disappointment and the lack of a personal God, is that indicative of reality in any way? And I think I think you can make C.S. a case Lewis. for it. Yeah. yeah, and I think you I think you can make a case for it. And I'm going to keep working on that in the coming months and years. But yeah, so for me, having Rowan, I have become more sure than ever that if there is any way to kind of shift myself away from that religious naturalism and into a more theistic direction, then that is definitely where I want to go. Because I think theism actually is what we call preserves the phenomena better of relationality than I think religious naturalism. I think that you would lose something if if our kind of superstructure of nature in ultimate reality is is not inherently relational. And um, it's difficult to talk about relationality if we're not talking about theism. So devil's advocate response is, well, it's great, Sarah, that you want to preserve the phenomena, Mm -hmm. but like, who cares? Like if it's just that you experience it and like, great, you want there to be a God, but there isn't. And so deal with it. That's not an argument they might say. Right, 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 right. For sure. Um, And I think that's where I would say that like there is there. I don't, I don't agree that like, just because I love my child, there has to be a God. That's not what I would want to say. But I think that there is something about the pattern and the structure of the physical world that we see that is 
inherently informational. It is inherently life-producing that needs to be explained, I think, in a way that we don't really get with kind of a, a reductionist kind of a scientific approach. Here's how I understand that approach. It would be something like this. Look, you either have – probably you have something like the multiverse, which is the current mm-hmm. description – So you either have bubbling universes or you have concurrently sort of side-by-side existing infinite universes or whatever, every possible version, such that in the one that we're in, the one that we happen to wake up in and have these thoughts, it looks like this. And we Mm -hmm. sort of got the luck of the uh, multiverse draw, Mm -hmm. right? And and so – we just happen to be in that one that looks relational or even is relational or, or whatever it is, but that doesn't say anything about a God or mm-hmm. uh, some sort of principle behind. It's just like one more example of random chance. There's chance at the universe level as well. And we got lucky. How mm-hmm. do you respond to that counter argument? Yeah, no, I don't think any argument for God works. So I would listen to myself and say, no, Sarah, your argument is not an argument. And I'm I'm the first to say, yeah, I don't think my argument for God is an argument for God. In fact, I don't actually believe, I'm not sure I can even say to myself, like, oh, I believe in the theistic God in the way that like, I'm like trying to argue for it right now. I think at the most, the most I can do right now is say that there is something extremely suggestive about the profound experience of relationality that having a child has given me. I've had, I've had profound relational experiences and connections in many other places. So it's not like this is my first experience of relationality. It's not that at all. It's just a very profound one. And it's a very physical one. I mean, Dan, I think that you and I are both, we're not fluffy people. We are both very critically aware of most of our own experiences. When I talk about the experience of motherhood, I'm not one of these people. I'm not a woman who is like all like unicorns and bunnies, right? Like I'm not... your typical mother, if you will. Like I'm very gritty in my approach to motherhood. I think I'm very aware of the profound physicality of it. And I feel like I'm looking at this like very clearly. Like I'm very aware that a whole bunch of like physical evolutionary mechanisms went into play and and are actually still in play for me. And when I, when I relate to Rowan, I'm very aware of all the reductionist arguments that could be levied against my experience of her and the transcendent aspect of of parenthood and loving your child and the relationality of that. I know all these arguments. Um, I think it's more like a, I'm following the breadcrumbs. I don't think that my experience proves God in any way. I don't think that any parents does, actually. I think that there are theories of error. There are evolutionary explanations for why we would think that our experiences were ontologically significant when they are not. But there is something suggestive about it. So maybe it is just the case that we live in a universe where there is no like Loctite argument for God. But if you are open to the more transcendent dimensions of the physical human experience, there are possibilities for connecting with a personal God um, that, can, that, can, that can be experienced, that might not be able to be proven, but can be experienced. That's best I got. That's good. I mean, I think there's no, you can't prove it, but if there's proof, it's in the pudding. Probably yeah, I'm yeah. Kierkegaardian in that sense. Yeah, yeah. You have to decide to live a, a religious or spiritual life. And, and most people that do, they tend to find the plenty of evidence to continue that yeah. once they do it. I, I do think though, that there is one interesting argument on the multiverse thing that I, that came up with David Wilkinson. I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts before we finish up here. Yeah. He wonders, and I I'm sympathetic to this. If the multiverse doesn't actually just sort of kick the can down the road So similar to the way that we might talk about evolution. So we might say something like, well, 
you could imagine that God would simply create species out of thin air, but maybe as it turns out, that's not really a possibility, even though we can think that it might be a possibility. We could say, well, God could. We, we, we could posit that kind of God, but perhaps there is no such God that can just pop humans out of thin air and pop camels out of thin air. Rather, perhaps the universe is such, the nature of matter, whatever is such, that you have to have something like evolution. Similarly, yeah. we could say, well, I can imagine a God who just can create any universe that God wants to create. So then God could create one like this. Well, it's all, it's quite possible that there are sort of laws about universe creation such that yeah. God actually, in order to create this universe, God has to create the multi, there needs to be a multiverse. Mm -hmm. And if that were to be true, then the multiverse doesn't actually solve that problem. It, it, it would introduce maybe other problems because you would maybe have to account for the beings who live in the shitty universes. Yeah. And perhaps that you'd have an issue there, but in at least one sense, it doesn't, it might be like, okay, so, Rather than being grateful to this personal God who made just this universe for us, yeah. we're grateful to the God who initiated the multiverse yep. such that yep. this universe would exist. And you, you can never really answer that one. So you're just, again, left with sort of like two options. But I, I'm not sure how much – if it does all the conceptual work it's supposed to do. Basically, mm -hmm. yeah, I actually have never been one to feel that we need multiverse theory to explain the specificity and the seemingly fine tuned nature of our universe. And it all for me comes down to evolutionary psychology. It all comes down to when we say, wow, how could when, it, when we say, how could um, this universe, a universe just like this exist? It's always our evaluation of the just like this bit that I want to suspect. So the, the atheistic kind of argument I would say here would be, well, you know, I know, I know that the universe seems incredibly fine-tuned to you. I get it. I know that you think that life is a huge miracle and that we have to create some very elaborate, complex, multiverse superstructure in order to explain it. I get it. But if not this, then perhaps something else. You know, like you just have no choice. You have no choice but to think that your universe is fine-tuned specifically to result in the sorts of experiences and phenomena that we have around us. And I get that life seems amazing. I get that love seems amazing. But you, but of course it does. Of course it does. You, you cannot help but see it that way. And, and we, I would even say that we can't imagine not evaluating it as being special or unique right. in some way. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think where Philip Clayton would push back, and I know you guys, I think you guys disagree on this, and I, I won't pretend to be a real stand-in for him, <laughs> is that there might be something about conscious experience and will that like maybe would not pass that mm -hmm. test, right? That like, no, sure. you you kind of, at least there's, a, okay, so we know that there's this way, there's mm -hmm. this particular way, like brains with a kind of interconnectedness of systems seems to produce consciousness or something like that. And you could imagine there would be other ways to produce consciousness, but mm -hmm. there there might not be infinite of those ways. And so it, it might not be true that just any old universe that would happen to exist would have something like that or as valuable as that. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I guess I'm I'm getting kind of to the limits of my own ability to to reason about this, but – Right. That's so he, yeah. So he, he has a, quite a few different arguments for um, consciousness being special uh, in some way. But one of I think his better ones is that if you first take an explanandum of like 
agency or free will. And you can use free will in like a constrained way. So obviously no one's completely free, blah, 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 blah. But some sort of agency, if humans have some sort of agency, then it is at least, at least suggestive that there would need to be something like God, a personal God that explains that or that allows that for for that to be right. So he sort of takes a, um, a brute fact of agency or will and says that if this, then God, right. And he, and he would include consciousness as like a necessary kind of piece of that right so yeah. it, it's sort of it's sort of the idea here you step back from all that and you said you, you sort of have to say is there anything in this world that i take as a brute fact that needs to be explained and for him he says yes and god and others might say yes and completely expected uh in in evolutionary terms and that's sort of not a decidable that's not decidable mm. by kind of yeah argumentation yeah Interesting. Well, we ended in a spot I didn't think we would end, but this is been a right. multiverse theory. There we are. <laughs> uh, we started yeah. with our babies and we ended at multiverse. Uh, but yeah, man, naturally. what a great conversation, Sarah. I am really excited for our recurring segment. We haven't determined exactly how often, but something like every two or three months. Yep. And we will just kind of talk through stuff because uh, we we get along so well conversationally. I know. I love it. All right. Thanks, Dan. It was so much fun. Yeah, it was great. Thank you so much. Next two weeks, the plan is to have two sort of politics adjacent, politics focused episodes, one on climate change and another on refugees, asylum seekers, and immigrant detention. These are kind of like my two biggest personal issues. I don't want to spend a lot of time on politics. I figure you guys kind of know where I stand. Uh, And frankly, I think that the particular presidential choice uh, is, is fairly clear for us this time around, although I'm a lot more open to basically all other uh, political decisions that we each make as voters uh, or volunteers, etc. But so those two are coming uh, and then we'll be back to sort of normal programming here. And yeah, so thank you to Josh Gilbert for editing my conversation with Sarah. And you can join the Patreon if you'd like. Patreon.com slash Dan Koch. See you guys next week. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how.